right, John Lieb. Uh, it's, it's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day again. Let's hear it for the mothers. Moms, women, thank you. Wow, that was really kind of pathetic. Clap there. Come on. Mother's Day, yeah. Come on, there you go. Wow. Uh, so we're in a series on the Holy Spirit called The People of the Presence. And it's been my experience many times in, in talking about the Holy Spirit that when you say the Holy Spirit and you look at people, you get these blank stares, you get these people's eyes widen and they go, oh no, what's going to happen? Uh, or they just go, the Holy who? What? Uh, because the Spirit of God it, it, in, in some ways is, a, is an enigma or a mystery to a lot of people. And it shouldn't be that way, actually. If you just recited the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed going back to the first century, uh, you'll notice that it talked about God the Father, God the Son, our Redeemer, and God the Spirit. And it talked about the church and, and all, this, all the work of the Spirit right in there with God the Father and God the Son. But the problem is, I think a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, people are used to, when they go to church, they hear a lot of talk about God the Father and God the Son uh, and God the Bible sometimes, it seems like. But the Holy Spirit, who is he? You know, what is the Holy Spirit all about? And our church movement, uh, the Vineyard, has a reputation for, for trying, to, trying to bring the Holy Spirit back into uh, the conversation of the church and the experience of the church the way that, that the scriptures seem to have him placed. And, but sometimes people go, why are you guys at the vineyard so into this Holy Spirit thing? I mean, what is it? Is it like your brand? You know, is it your market niche? You know, you want to get all the flaky people in the whole world to come to your church? Implied, I've heard people say that. There was, a, there was another church in Columbus that called our church once a lower brainstem church because we talk about the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's kind of a reference way back. I won't, I won't name that church. I should. Okay. <laughs> We're going to cut that part out of the tape, please, if you didn't hear who it was. Well, we have this legacy as a, as a movement. We have a really rich legacy of the work of the Holy Spirit in, in our midst. It's not perfect by any means, but we do. And I want to... I, if I was going to describe what the, sort of what the title of this would be is, I want to talk to you about the, living the interrupted life. Now, some of you go, well, that's what I live already. You know, I have four kids. That's my experience. Or, you know, I have a boss that interrupts my life constantly or my husband or my wife or whatever. But what the Christian life is about in many ways is experiencing a life interrupted, where God breaks into our lives and becomes real to us. Not just a word, but where he becomes real. In fact, in my conversations with people, you can, if you ask people this question, it's a, it's a very telling question. You say, was there ever a time in your life where God became more than a word to you? Where God was once just a word, an idea, and then all of a sudden he became real to you. 
And a lot of people have stories that they don't like to tell because, you know, they, they're in a population of people that maybe faith isn't really very important to them, and they look down critically, so to speak, on anybody that talks about their faith in a meaningful, real way. And, or maybe they, don't, they aren't even necessarily people who have, you know, some make a big deal about faith in their life, but they have these experiences that they've had that they can't really explain. They don't have a category for it. Well, what I want to do today is our, our church has this legacy. Uh, and actually, Mother's Day is a, a day in the Vineyard Movement that's kind of famous because uh, in one of the early days, early years of the Vineyard Movement, the Holy Spirit was really poured out powerfully uh, on Mother's Day in uh, a vineyard church that impacted literally in, that what happened there literally impacted churches all over the world. And churches like ours uh, exist today because of that. And we've had our own moments here as a church. And I don't know if I'll, I'll tell you one of them. Uh, if I have a little time at the end, I might do it. But the, the legacy of, of the vineyard and of this movement of the Holy Spirit among us is that he's taught us that the Spirit isn't a subject. He's a person to be known and to be experienced. And that our, that our Christian life can't be anything that it's meant to be if the Holy Spirit's not a part of it, and it isn't. Now, a lot of people have experienced the Spirit, but they don't necessarily know how to describe that. So what I want to look at you today is we're just going to take a story in the Bible. It's, it's kind of a well-known story. It's in the book of Acts. If you would turn to Acts chapter 10, what I want to show you today is in this story uh, there are paperback Bibles under the chair seats in front of you. And uh, Acts chapter 10 is page 764. What I want to try to show you today is that, that I'd say everybody in this room has experienced the Holy Spirit at work in their life in probably one of the ways I'm describing right now. But this is, I've just picked out four ways that we can see the Holy Spirit becoming real to these people. And, he's, and he's, way, he's become real to many of us in these same ways, but there's many other ways that he makes himself real to us. So, Acts 10. This is kind of a, a long little story, so I'm going to read through it, and I just want you to track along here with me. In verse 1, Acts 10, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, which is a Jewish time of prayer, they, would, they had prayer at set times during the day. So he's a soldier, and he would stop in the middle of his soldiering, and he would pray, just like you see Muslims do. Muslims have uh, five set times of prayer a day, and they'll pull a prayer shawl out, and they'll stop whatever they're doing and pray. Well, that's an ancient practice. Christians have done it. Christians did it long before Muslims did it. And Jew, because Jews did it. And this man, Cornelius, was following Jewish spirituality. He was, you know, he was a pagan, but when he, in his travels as a soldier, he encountered Jews, he became what was called a, a Jewish convert. And that was someone who was drawn to Jewish uh, monotheism and, and ethical instruction and their whole way of life, and it was something that they could see God was in it. He saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. 
Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he said. The angel said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa who pr- and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. About noon, so the, the story unfolds, about noon the following day, as they were on a journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Christians continued to, to have set times of prayer, they didn't just pray in the morning. They didn't just pray, you know, at prayer meetings. So he's up on the roof to pray. In verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air meaning it had all kinds of animals to a Jew, clean animals and unclean animals. Because if you know anything about uh, kosher laws or the Old Testament laws about uh, foods that could be eaten and not eaten, there were certain animals that you could eat and certain animals you couldn't eat. And if you ate the animals you weren't supposed to eat, you were ceremonially uh, unclean and you couldn't go to worship. You you were considered uh, tainted. And so he has this vision of all these animals and he's being told to do something that he had been taught his whole life you shouldn't do. So, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, no way, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So he, he, he'd followed kosher law his whole life, which is a pretty important thing at that time uh, in First Temple Judaism. Or, I'm sorry, Second Temple Judaism. Uh, the voice spoke to him a second time, don't call anything impure that God made clean, that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So it repeated itself, and that's, that's sort of a, a biblical clue that, that God was emphasizing something when it was repeated, okay? And just like with your kids, you know, you repeat things to them, or, or a subordinate, or you're training someone, you want them to get it. So it Peter was wondering, in verse 17, the meaning of the vision. And while he was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Peter's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. You get this. Here's the first mention of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's through this whole story, but it's explicit that the Spirit is the one who's speaking to Cornelius. The Spirit's the one who's speaking to Peter. And you're going to see in a second, the Spirit's the one that's at work in this whole thing from beginning to end. So the Holy Spirit is, is really involved in everybody's life in this. Now, Peter takes that for granted because he's experienced the Holy Spirit uh, you know, in the ministry of Jesus and then on the day of Pentecost and in his life, the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts are just these amazing stories of the Holy Spirit being real to people and, and particular people like Peter. So 
Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Because all he knew was the Spirit told him that, you know, there's the appointment for you. And, and go with them. The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. I'll develop this. This is a big deal. Jews and Gentiles didn't go in the same places. They didn't go into each other's homes. Jews and Gentiles had this dividing wall between them that kept them completely apart. And for Peter, number one, to to feel comfortable uh, having any more than superficial interaction with these men was an amazing thing because his whole life he had been taught to consider the Gentiles as not just second class, Jewish people had a term that was well known historically at this time. They called Gentiles dogs. And they did that because they said dogs, after they vomit, go back and eat their vomit. And that's just like Gentiles. When they sin, they just keep going back to it. And the Jewish people had this well-documented prejudice against Gentiles. And they thought, because God told them to live a holy, unique, special sort of life, that that meant that they were better and that they were supposed to be separate from all these dirty, rotten Gentile sinners. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound anything like maybe what you hear sometimes in church? And then, of course, generations of this kind of thinking created this prideful prejudice it was toxic. I mean, it was, it was scary how bad it was. And if you've been here before, I've explained to you how in the city of Jerusalem at this time, which was where the temple of the Jewish people was, where God was worshipped, as you would go up to the temple, it was on this mount, they called the Temple Mount, which if you see pictures of Jerusalem today, there's a wailing wall, and now there's a, 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 a Muslim shrine on the Temple Mount. But it's, it's elevated. And back in that day, you could see it from, you know, miles and miles away. It had gold leaf all over it. But as you went up to it, there were steps going up to it, and there were signs that, say, that, that said in different languages, if you're not a Jew and you go past this sign, you will be killed. That's how serious the Jewish people were about keeping the Gentiles away from their worship. But yet God told them early in their existence, God, the first, the first Jew was a Gentile named Abraham. And God said to Abraham, listen, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless every nation in the world, all the Gentiles. Somehow the Jewish people had gotten a hold of this idea that this is just for us. We're God's special people. We're better than everybody else. God loves just us. Well, At this point in this story of how the gospel started spreading across the world, this is a really big deal. This is a super big deal. Just for Peter to invite these men, uh, ironically, into a house he was a guest at. But for him to invite them in was a big deal, big first step. So the story picks up. 
The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along, so some other Christians. And all these are, are Jewish believers. They have Jewish backgrounds who are followers of Jesus. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. So he's treating Peter like he's, you know, a rock star, like he's someone really special. But Peter made him get up. Stand up. I am only a man myself. I mean, look, see the humility? Something's happening in Peter's heart here. He used to inwardly hold on to attitudes like that, like, I am better than you. You should be at my feet. Now he's not. Something's starting to thaw in Peter's heart. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Now, if you know anything about centurions, a centurion would be the rank of a, a, a captain in the army today, essentially. They were, they were very, very important people in the Roman army. They were very well paid. They were generally really sharp, sharp people because the whole Roman army, these guys were the people that kept it on its feet. They were the ones that made the Roman army so effective. And so they were really, really well uh, paid and respected. And they were the kind of people that, that were very influential people. They were they would be the kind of people that, that college recruiters go onto campus and look for the best of the best. That's what these people were. And so this Roman centurion was stationed there in Caesarea. And, you know, you know what it's like to live away from home if you ever have before. It, it's, it can just be a pain. You're an outsider. The Jews are giving you this sense of your second class. And, you know, you're away from home and your family. Anyway, this guy was an unusual person anyway, despite all that. And he said, um, he said to them, you're well aware that it is, this is Peter talking to all the people that are gathered. You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered. Now, Cornelius sort of just summarizes his story here. He says, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. It was good of you to come. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So, so somewhere along the way, this man, Cornelius, is saying, God, I want to know you. You're the, I believe you're the one true God, and I want to know you. But all of the stuff that he was into wasn't adequate to satisfy his heart, Okay. And he's calling out to God, God, where are you? You know, I, you seem to be real. And, and the, the whole Jewish people have this history of you being real to them, but, but you're not to me. And so in answer to that prayer, the angel says, I'm going to tell you how God will become real to you. So Cornelius says uh, four days ago, oh, I'm sorry, goddamn. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts men and 
from every nation who fear him and do what's right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel. So he's referring to something here that he knew these men and everyone gathered in this house, they'd heard about Jesus. They just didn't understand Jesus' relevance to them. They thought Jesus had something to do with just the Jewish people. And the Jewish people just thought that. Peter just thought that. At this point, Peter's realizing there's something going on here that I didn't expect. So he says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So catch that, Lord of all. Not just the Jewish people, Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree on the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter's explained the gospel. This is the point where everything, the interruption happens. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, the first thing you see in the story of, of how the Spirit became real was the Spirit is God's loving presence pursuing us, each of us. Cornelius, something stirred in this man who had everything you could have. He had power. He had prestige. He, he was successful, professionally successful, respected by everybody. He was, there were things about him morally he was respected. But there's also, a, none of that was adequate for this emptiness in his heart. None of it. And I think every one of us could have experienced at some point in our life what that emptiness feels like. And it can be very, very unsettling when you're sitting in a situation where everything is happening that you've worked for and you're not happy. And you go, is this as good as it gets? Is this what life's meant to be? And he comes across the Jewish religion and thinks maybe a little spirituality will help, and he dives into that. And there's something there, but it's still not what he's looking for. And so we see the Holy Spirit seeking this guy, seeking him, 
The angel came. I want you to notice this. The angel came to Cornelius and said his name. God knew his name, which is a pretty important thing. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody, you're, you're in the presence of somebody who's really important, and you're just a piece of furniture. They don't know you, right? They know everybody else in the room but you. It feels kind of weird. But when someone knows your name, it's like, wow, someone knows me. I matter. That's what it was like for Cornelius here. And he was an unlikely person for God to take any interest in. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. Each of us, the Holy Spirit is the one. He's the loving presence of God who's pursuing our hearts, even if nobody else seems to care about us. That's what Cornelius experienced, and it awakened him. It captured his heart. Now, think about this, too. <laughs> I have friends who've, who've fought in different wars. My dad fought in World War II, told me all kinds of crazy stories. I have friends that were in the Vietnam War. I've had friends that were in the Middle East and the many wars that we've had there in Afghanistan. We had people in our church serve there. And when you go to these wars and you fight and you kill people, it is very traumatic. You may think, isn't it traumatic on the people who get killed? Yeah, that's a given. It is also traumatic on the people who do the killing. It's traumatic for anybody just to see someone killed, to see the violence, to see the craziness of war. This man, today we bomb people from drones hundreds of miles away. Back then, their war was all face-to-face. When you killed someone, you looked them in the eyes when you stabbed them, when you killed them. It's very traumatic. I guarantee you, a man like Cornelius, who rose to that position, proverbially had a lot of blood on his hands. And I imagine that was behind some of this quest in his heart for some peace. You know, let me ask you a question. Do you have blood on your hands, so to speak? Is there stuff that in your heart you just feel like you carry around? It may not be as dramatic and traumatic as that, but it's still a weight, still a burden. We all do, and he did. His was unusual and extraordinary. And so the Spirit of God was drawing him home. And each one of us in our lives will experience some time, and some, some of us, because we fight God's Spirit, we experience the Spirit of God just coming over and over and over and wooing us and drawing us and just constantly whispering love towards us. Now, sometimes we sort of want to ignore that. We want to push it aside, but it doesn't make him stop doing it. That's what Cornelius That's what this story tells us. God was reaching out to this guy because God loves us. He's pursuing us, and he wants a relationship with us at all costs. And the second thing is the Spirit is God's holy presence challenging darkness in us. Now, where's that in this story? God is coming to Peter, and he's challenging the prejudice in Peter's heart. He's saying, Peter, I don't have the same attitude towards these Gentiles that you do. And you think, well, that's, can, 
Why didn't he say it just straightforward like that? Like the angels show up to Peter and go, Peter, you're prejudiced. You need to repent. God has his ways of, having an, of making an impact on us that are a lot more powerful than just a straightforward you know, punch to the face. Peter associated Gentiles with bad things. And God had to break down that and get him to see, you're no different, Peter. And he started the process with this visual experience. Now, I want you to realize Peter was staying at the house of a man named Simon the Tanner. A tanner is someone who, who took skins from animals and made them into you know, leather, all kinds of leather products. So dead animals. So Peter is already, already hanging around someone whose vocation made him ceremonially unclean. So Peter's already, already wrestling with this. Now, th- that's one thing about us. A lot of our prejudices are not very consistent. We're willing to allow some people, our friends, to do things that we don't allow other people to do. We're willing to, to judge people that aren't our friends or aren't, they're, they're part of them. We judge them more harshly than we judge ourselves and our friends and family. You can see this in Peter. He's the same way. Maybe this guy was well off, and Peter thinks, well, I'm not going to ask questions about this. <laughs> and that's, that's not very honest. And so God's calling him on it because Peter doesn't understand that God loves everybody the same. Now, we kind of take that for granted now. The truth is all of us have people in our lives that we have prejudice towards. We all do. It's part of being human. Some of us have prejudice towards immigrants. Not all immigrants, certain kinds of immigrants. Some of, us, some of us have prejudice towards people who politically think different than us. I mean, has there ever been a time in our history where people have been meaner about politics than we are today? Has it, I can't remember one. Now, I haven't been here for 260 years. <laughs> but it sure seems nasty. And it, and it doesn't matter which political party you're a part of. You can see in the political parties the same meanness towards the other, their, their, their opposition. And we all, when we're part of a political party that says we have the truth and we, we have the right perspective, it's really ironic that we can have such prejudiced attitudes towards people who don't agree with us and for it to be so consistent and for and the saddest thing is for us to be so blinded to it and it feels so self-justified in hating those people who believe that way and would vote for that particular candidate who believes in those particular positions and let me tell you it's not going to get prettier it's going to get worse do you have prejudices in your hearts about certain groups of people, or certain ideas, or certain whatever? Because the Spirit of God will come and challenge those. And that's the thing that interrupts our lives, that makes our lives uncomfortable. Peter, is, his life is really, really ordered and okay. He's doing what God wants, and all of a sudden, God wants him to go hang out with some Gentiles. And I don't know if you noticed the story. The story starts with Peter here, 
and Cornelius here, miles apart. And then as we read it, it ends up where Peter and Cornelius are eating dinner together in the same house. The picture begins with where their society was at and where every society is at. It's still at that, like that today. Do you understand in Dublin one of the reasons why we have real low population density is because when you have a one-acre lot, the homes are going to be really expensive, and it keeps those kind of people out of the neighborhood. If you don't think that's not part of it, you're really naive. Look at the education that it demands to be able to buy our McMansions where we live here. It's part of who we are. It's something we have to face. How many apartment complexes are there in Dublin? Not very many. Because the apartment complexes bring a lower socioeconomic type of people into the schools. And, um, you know, it, it's part of the way people are. And we think we're all, well, we're, gosh, we're all these, we're really these nice, open-minded, sort of big-hearted, hard-working people. But it's, it's, a, it's a little uglier picture if you look a little closer. And you can see it in the schools. You can see it in businesses. You can see it everywhere. And the, and the Holy Spirit comes and challenges that. He comes into the little comfortable world that we create. It's all about us. And he, he challenges that. And he did it with Peter. And he commands. Now, listen, listen to this. Just give you a picture, too. One, the one thing about the Bible that makes it so true is if this was something that people just made up, all the heroes of the Bible would look good all the time, right? Because that's what heroes are. Now, I know we have the anti-hero type today in movies and, uh, you know, the characters who have their ragged life. You know, Spider-Man's saving people, but he's also a heroin addict, you know. Uh, I mean, he's not, but you know what I mean, uh, but in the ancient world, heroes were like, you just didn't see in their narratives the, their bad side. But here's how this story starts out. Cornelius encounters, he's, he is an unlikely person to want to pray and help the poor. He's a soldier who stomps on the poor. And yet, here he is, very unlikely person who's crying out to God, God, where are you? Are you real? I'm seeking you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I've earned, and I'm going to give it away to people. And that didn't make him a better person. It just showed something inside him. Like I have a friend who's one of his sons. My, my friend's a, been a missionary. He's a pastor. And one of his kids isn't following Christ. And his kid has sort of rejected spirituality altogether and faith altogether for whatever reason. And he said, you know what? Uh, my son recently went on a 15-day silence and solitude retreat. And he said, I was thinking about and thinking, that's the weirdest thing in the world for my son to do that. What is he doing? And he said, I realized he's looking for God. You don't go on a retreat where you're in silence and solitude for 15 days if you're not trying to connect with something transcendent. You understand? And a lot of times we can't see that. So here's Cornelius. He's seeking God. The angel tells him to do something. He just says, okay. Boom. He sends his three friends to go get the Jew. Now, again, he had every 
reason to feel superior, their army had conquered the Jews. The Jews' taxes paid his salary. He walked around town and his men, they could do anything they wanted. They didn't have to hang around with the Jews. If the Jews didn't like them, so what? But that's not his attitude. Then Peter, God speaks to Peter, and three times Peter says, No, God. I mean, isn't it something of a contradiction to say, no, Lord? And, and honestly, all of us have a lot of experience with that. Every one of us. But this is telling the story of where Peter was really at. And the Holy Spirit challenges that. Have you felt challenged at some point in your life with where you're at morally, ethically, personally, relationally? Have you felt the Spirit challenge you and say, why are you holding on to that bitterness? Why aren't you more generous with your money? Why do you spend it all on yourself? Why are you prejudiced? Why are you dishonest? Why are you taking advantage of other people sexually? And on and on and on. Do you ever feel the Spirit doing that? See, we think, oh, God's love. He doesn't care about all that stuff. Well, this shows you. Now, This fits in today with our modern issue with prejudice real well, though. But back then, they didn't even care about prejudice. But God did. Prejudice was okay. It was socially sanctioned. You could be prejudiced, and you were considered okay. But God didn't think it was okay, which is the scary thought. Because a lot of times, we need to check our value system when we approach God and say, God, I feel okay with my conscience, but what do you think? Because just because what we're doing gets reinforced by everybody around us doesn't mean that it's okay in God's eyes. And really, that's the most important measuring stick, isn't it? And we have to constantly be willing to say, God, show me where I'm off. It's even more important when everybody around you is patting you on the back and saying, you're okay, for you to go, but God, am I okay? Is the way I treat my kids okay in your sight? Is the way I spend my money? Is the way I talk to my fellow employees or the way I talk about my boss or the way I talk about subordinates? And on and on and on. Because the Holy Spirit is God's holy presence challenging darkness in us. And the third thing is, The Spirit is God's revealing presence, making what Jesus did real. So what what this whole thing was set up for was these guys were just burdened with guilt because of the way they were living. Peter comes and tells them the good news. Now, they understood it because if you notice, Peter says, uh, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And he goes on and tells about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, which is the heart of the gospel. But what he was saying was, you guys already know this. But when Peter came, the Holy Spirit had set this whole thing up. And the Holy Spirit reveals our need for what God's offering us. And he reveals that what Jesus did is what reconciles us to God. And so it says, as they are hearing these words, they're believing in their hearts, and God shows 
Something's happened inside them that Peter can't see. Because remember, Peter's, this is the first time Peter's even entertained the idea that the gospel message had any relevance to Gentiles. And there are people in your life that, that you think they don't care at all about Jesus. Because you look at them superficially, like Cornelius, and you think, they got their religion. They got whatever it is that they're looking for. Or maybe they don't have any religion and they're happy with that. But you don't see the, the need of their heart and the cry of their heart. But God does. And so Peter went there. And what happens is the Holy Spirit opens our eyes in a way that's beyond something intellectual. Because they already heard the gospel. But suddenly they realize Jesus did what he did. What they've tried to do in trying to please God by offering money to help the poor, by praying, because that's the way most people think that you get to God, is you try to live the best life you can, and especially you get the religious part of it together, and then God will accept you. But Cornelius is a guy who's completely burdened down with the way he's lived. And his whole family is benefited from his life vocation. They're all stained with the same guilt. And they hear this message, and they believe. It doesn't say it in the text, but the Bible says when you believe in Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the Holy Spirit now interrupts Peter. So like like right this moment, pause, Holy Spirit falls on you. And everyone begins to praise God. Not in some rehearsed, congregational singing way, but in a spontaneous, God has forgiven me. Because Peter says, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him and Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In other words, we're forgiven not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus did. And they had been focused on what they were supposed to do, and suddenly the good news broke in to their understanding and they began to believe in Jesus. And as soon as they did, God poured his spirit out and gave them this sense that you belong to me. You're mine. Your sins are forgiven. You're loved. You matter. I know you. You count. I care about you. And they began to praise God. You've all seen, like, there's always these... uh, sports cutaways where uh, some team, you're watching a, a show, and some team wins a national championship, and they cut away to some venue on the campus of that school because the game's being played in Arizona, and the, the East Coast school that's playing in the national championship, it cuts back to where all the students are, and they're all sitting there, and the game is over, and they go, bah! they just all start screaming and you know, running around, and it's bedlam. That's what this was like. Because the Spirit fell on them, and they were no longer going through just religious motions. Now God was real. And then, like I said before, the Spirit is the one. He is God's uniting presence, and he unites they into we. And people belong. Doesn't mean there isn't any strife. There aren't any tensions, but suddenly, all of a sudden, me and Phil are family. 
my last name's Lieb, his last name's Stearns. Previously, that would mean we weren't family, you know, and maybe in certain cultures, we would be the Hatfields and the McCoys. But Jesus makes the Hatfields and the McCoys we. He's the only one that did. That's what the early church, that's what blew the Greco-Roman world away was these people that would believe in Jesus would experience something that, where they call, like one of the, one of the Roman uh, proconsuls wrote to, the, uh, to Rome, to the emperor, and said, these Christians take care of the poor and the dead and the dying and family, people who aren't their family, and they all call each other brother. It's because the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus did on the cross where he broke down all these barriers and all the things that make us feel prejudiced and feel superior, and he just wrecks them. The gospel wrecks them. They are destroyed forever. And Jesus unites us and says, that person should matter to you as much as your flesh and blood can and gives you an experience of love, God's love for you and God's love for them, that all of a sudden you do, they do matter to you. And if you've known Jesus very long, you probably experienced that where God's love changed your heart towards someone that you used to have a pretty bad attitude towards. Have you ever experienced that before? Now, sometimes that feeling fades because things happen. And it's easy to get alienated again. But if we go back to Christ, the love that God has for those people is something we can tap into and experience. So the Holy Spirit interrupts us. He interrupts our lives. He wants to interrupt your lives. And if you let him interrupt your life on a regular basis, God's interruptions, this is your takeaway, God's interruptions are invitations to God's possibilities. Why don't you stand with me? Let's sing this song together. When you walk into the room, everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble at the light. That you bring And when you walk into the room Every heart starts burning And nothing matters more than just to sit 